0: This week in the Dan Cave, it's time for my mid-season Seahawk grades. They range from A to D-minus. Who gets what? Stay tuned. And as bad as things may get for the Hawks over the next two weeks, I'll break down exactly why you shouldn't panic, even if their losing streak grows to three straight games. And newsflash, it just might. The Cougs debuted with a win over Oregon State in Nick Rolovich's first game as WSU head coach and Jaden DeLora's first start at quarterback. I'll tell you what I thought of our first look at the freshman and who he reminds me of. Mostly football today, but I'll peek in on the Mariners as well. Lots to get to, so let's get inside. The Dan Cave Podcast is up next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Viennes. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Dan Cave episode one oh four. That's a little new release from Pop Evil this week. Uh, for you music fans out there, um, finally a light at the end of the tunnel. Some a lot to look forward to, I think, over the next few months. You know, a lot of these bands are reporting that um, you know during the lockdown, during a pandemic, they can't tour, they don't have anything to do, they're stuck at home. A lot of them have home studios, so a lot of new materials being written and. After six months of eight months of not getting any concerts, not getting new material from the bands you like, uh, I think 2021 is going to be a stellar year musically, and we're already starting to see that uh, filter out, um, at least in the rock world so far. Welcome back in. Uh, It is a Saturday, usually later in the week than I get started uh, and do a podcast, but I couldn't leave you hanging with uh, Big Seahawk Game and Cougs and Huskies both playing today as well. Uh, just got a lot on my plate, a lot of side projects that um, that I'll be announcing at a later time, um, uh, not the least of which is the 365 Sportscast uh, show that I'm getting ready for that should debut in January, 365 Sportscast, or Sportscast 365, uh, brand new internet, uh, worldwide sports internet radio network uh that I will be a part of. Um, the Emerald City Sportscast will be live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Um, so stay tuned for that. A lot more information coming up. But uh, that's not the only thing I'm working on on the side. Been spending a lot of time in the studio here. Let me just uh, put it that way. Uh, more details to come. And some of you might not be a fan of what I've been working on. It might not have any interest in it. Some of you might uh, either way. it's It's been fun. It's taken up a lot of time. And here we are again. I, I mean, gosh, I just want to say as as I try to every week that I feel for all of you who are being affected by this pandemic. Um, I mean, we're all being affected by it in one way or another, right? But some harder than others. Um, and and we're seeing that spike. We're seeing Uh, that resurgence that all the experts have been warning us about all year long, and it certainly is happening. We're seeing massive uh, increase in cases and hospitalizations and sicknesses, and the death toll is starting to rise again. And in fact, um, we kind of got word last night at work to brace yourselves um, for potentially some new restrictions being laid out by the governor uh, next week. So I may have a lot more time on my hands coming up in the next couple of weeks, in which case, you know what? Just do more podcasts, right? We all win. <laughs> um, let's talk some football. And obviously, first and foremost on everybody's mind this week is that Buffalo game, right? I mean, went to work this week and everybody was just bummed out. Like the Seahawks started out five and zero. That that the offense was on fire. Russ was an MVP front runner. Everything was gravy. It, kind of in the northwest here, which is where and you know, we had the first recorded case of COVID here. So we've kind of been dealing with this longer than the rest of the country. In a year where good news has been hard to find, at least for Seahawk fans, those first five weeks were a lot of fun. And now lost two out of three in, uh, in really frustrating fashion. Uh, what's next? What's going on with this team? What do we have to look forward to? Is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? We're going to touch on quite a bit of that today. It's really frustrating to be at this point, as a Seahawk fan, questioning the legitimacy now of whether or not this team is a championship contender. And it's frustrating especially because of where we were two years ago. When you you look back to 2018, we were all frustrated then too, but we were frustrated for a much, much different reason. The defense was good enough to allow us to compete. Wasn't great. There were issues there, but it was good enough to allow us to compete. It was the offense that was on lockdown. It was the offense that wasn't good enough, and it wasn't because they weren't talented enough. They didn't have the pieces in place. It was Pete Carroll's decision to be very, very conservative on offense, pound the football relentlessly, and it ended up that that decision was they ran it to a fault. In the, in the best example, that was the last game they played against Dallas in the, in the wildcard game, lost a game they should have won because they just didn't let Russell throw the football enough. Now they finally take the reins off the offense. Seahawks lead the NFL in points per game, almost 35 points a game. They're 6-2 and two on the surface. It's not a bad combination, right? But the defense has been so bad, historically bad, literally historically bad, that it now appears this team can no longer be considered a Super Bowl contender. Is that the case? The next two weeks will tell the story for some of you. But should it? I'll explore that in a little bit. But first, we're eight games in. They're 6-2. and two. It's time for my midseason grades. And I'm just going to jump right into these in no particular order. We'll go by position groups and then I'll hand out some individual awards uh, as well. Offensive line, I'm going to give them a solid B. There were questions about this coming into the season. If you remember, Pete Carroll said, I want continuity. And then they let Jermaine Fetty walk. They released DJ Fluker. And they didn't bring Justin Britt back while he was rehabbing from an ACL. They decided to move on from him as well. In a cost-cutting move. Brought in B.J. Finney. Brought in Brandon Shell. Drafted Damian Lewis in the third round. Handed the starting center job to Ethan Posick. The line has been much, much better at providing consistent protection to Russell Wilson. It's not... I mean, you just don't flinch as much, right? When you look back over the last couple of years, sort of a recurring theme offensively for the Seahawks is those first couple of drives, it always took them a while to get going, and a lot of that was breakdowns in protection. In particular, a lot of that was breakdowns on the interior. And we're just not seeing that. It's not perfect, certainly. And that's what kept them from being An A. Hard to judge this unit as a run-blocking unit so far because of the injuries in the backfield. We'll get to that in a second. And there have been some periodic breakdowns in key moments late in the game against Arizona. Some of that falls on the running back position as well. Travis Homer got hurt. Carlos Hyde was out. DJ Dallas was the only healthy running back at the end of that game. And his biggest, most glaring weakness is he's just not ready to contribute in pass protection yet. He was terrible, and the Cardinals took advantage of that. Blitz, 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 blitz. And the offensive line didn't pick up the slack. And then late in the Buffalo game, we saw the same thing. Periodic breakdowns and key moments has cost uh, that unit, and they're they it's still kind of an incomplete grade in the running game. But on a consistent play-in, play-out basis, they are much more capable of dealing with uh, pass pressure and giving Russell Wilson time in the pocket. It just it speaks to Mike Solari as an offensive line coach. It also speaks to the Seahawks' evaluations of offensive line talent. Now they missed on B.J. Finney. Solid player, well-graded, thought he was going to come in and be the starting center, but a guy that could also back up at both guards, guard positions. Subbing for Pouncey last year in Pittsburgh, graded out very, very good as a pass-protecting center after a stellar college career as a center. But he just, uh, the knock on him was he couldn't pick up, quick enough anyway, to compete. The protections and the calls. And Ethan Posick from day one was clearly better. It's unfortunate that we're dealing with a Posick injury this week now. He's out. Kyle Fuller will be the starting center. We don't know what we have there. I'm gonna, I'm not done talking about Ethan Posick, but a, a solid B for the offensive line. Running backs, this was tough to grade. Almost gave them an incomplete because the, there just isn't enough information. But I gave him a C. Maybe that's a cop-out grade. Injuries, inconsistency. Chris Carson missed the last two games. Carlos Hyde now has missed a couple of games. He was injured when they signed him. Maybe they should have seen this coming. Much of this grade falls on Dallas. He's been solid. He's gotten in the end zone a couple times the last couple of weeks. Runs hard. Pretty decisive. Good cutback runner. Catches the ball really well, but as I said, not ready yet in pass protection. So running backs, tough one to grade, but we'll give him a C. Moving on to the wide receiver group, this one, it was easy. This has to be an A, right? I mean, Lockett has been boom or bust. Great game or fairly invisible, but overall outstanding. And that's kind of been his M.O. over the last couple of years anyway. D.K. Metcalf, let's call it what it is. He has ascended into the upper reaches of the NFL wide receiver hierarchy, hasn't he? I mean, I'm not saying yet that he's one of the elite in the league, but he sure is trending in that direction. It's like, it's not a, he's not a number one hit yet, but he's sure climbing the charts. And this is fun when you look at his numbers through the first eight games. He is on pace. I like these because it's the halfway point. It's easy math. He's on pace for 86 catches, 1,600 yards, 16 touchdowns. He has made an impact. It'll be fascinating to see what he does tomorrow against Jalen Ramsey of the Rams. I assume that Ramsey will follow him. May provide some real opportunities for Lockett. Uh, But the group goes beyond that. Uh, Liked what we saw from Freddie Swain early on. They really trusted him, gave him some opportunities early as far back as week one. Haven't seen as much lately, but some of that is because of the development of David Moore. I've said it many times on the show. I thought he was just a guy. I didn't think he was anything special. Didn't have him on my final 53 in the preseason projection. He has developed into into a really reliable third option. I have likened him to Bobby Ingram. He's making the tough catches. He makes big catches and big moments. Really like what I see from David Moore as the third wide receiver. because We really came into the season thinking it was going to be Philip Dorsett. He's been injured. We thought Josh Gordon might contribute. Why is Josh – this is not in my notes, a little side note here. Why is Josh Gordon not reinstated by the NFL in light of the fact that Antonio Brown has been for crimes that far exceed what Josh Gordon has done? And the league has relaxed their stance on marijuana use, which has been Josh Gordon, while not his only misstep, has been his primary downfall. I don't know what's going on there, but. David Moore has really helped step up and give the team a third option in that wide receiver group, so that's why it's an easy A. Uh, The tight end group, a B-plus in this one. Very solid group overall. No one has really stepped up and become a consistent weapon of Russell's, but there are options there. Olsen has been big on third downs, especially in that Minnesota game, came up with some big catches. The veteran. Has his production matched the $7 million they gave him? in the offseason, and the opportunity cost of what they could have used that $7 million for instead, that's a larger conversation for another show. But he's been good. Will Disley, it seems like they're treating him with kid gloves after the two major injuries his two first seasons in the league. You kind of forget that he's around, then he comes up with a catch. But the ceiling of, of this entire group, I still think Will Disley has the biggest chance to, let's say, in 2022, be the star of this group. If not 2021, and Jacob Hollis, Hollister, after being bandied about as a trade candidate at the deadline, he stayed put, and now the last three weeks, 12 targets, had five catches against Buffalo, seems to be stepping up again as he did the last third of last season as a favorite of Russ, and now Colby Parkinson, the, the rookie out of Stanford, the six foot seven rookie, we haven't seen he's been active, or he's been on the 53 man roster the last couple of weeks after starting the season on the injured list. Um, have not seen a target for him yet. Haven't seen what he can do in the red zone yet. But solid group overall. Uh, a B plus for the tight ends. How about the quarterback? Uh, this position group is is just one player. Haven't seen Geno Smith yet. And in fact, he popped up on the injury list this week. Um, I'm going to give Russell an A. This my grading system does go to A plus. And Russell at the third quarter, or the quarter pole or the third pole, either one of those would have been an A+, plus. but the turnovers the last couple of weeks cannot continue. And as much as I excuse them in some sense because the end of the Arizona game was such a debacle in so many ways that he was trying to force some things, uh, same could be said in the Buffalo game because the defense was so bad, I think he was really trying to force some things. To get some points on the board, because he knew the offense had to score every time they touched the ball to give him a chance to win. Um, th- those turnovers cannot continue. I've heard some people say, oh, "I think, I think it's gotten in his head. I think he's a little off now. I don't think he operates that way. I think he's typically very, very careful. Uh, let's say, let's say on a normal Sunday." He's a nine out of 10 or a 10 on a scale of one to 10 as far as being careful with the football. Maybe he relaxed that guard down into the five or six range because he knew he just had to take some chances. Still, cannot continue, especially over the next two weeks when the offense is going to have to be nearly perfect for the Seahawks to have a chance to compete. But otherwise, he's been great, he's been accurate. Uh, he's taking control of that offense. Um, he's just not the MVP front runner anymore. And unfortunately, he's in a position where he has to be great every single week for this team to contend. Shouldn't have come to that, but we're not going to talk about that today. Let's go to the defensive side of the ball, the defensive line. A lot of you may be expecting this to be an F or a D because there's no pass. For- I gave him a C C+. You have to kind of look beyond... The initial knee-jerk reaction that, that we as fans always have, and that oh, there just isn't a pass rush. For a couple of reasons. The Leo position hasn't been productive. Certainly. Benson Mayoa before he got hurt, and, and Bruce Irvin before him before he got hurt, were not productive at all. I had hope for Mayoa. I actually question now, when he does come back off the injured list, if there's even a spot on the roster for him. We'll see. Uh, but that could be changing. Uh Carlos Dunlap. Made his debut against Buffalo, huge presence, immediate impact. Made a bigger impact in his first game after a week of practice than Jadevian Clowney did last year at the beginning of the year with all the fanfare around that trade. Dunlap clearly made a presence, clearly still has something left in the tank, wasn't done. What were the Bengals thinking? How do you not keep that guy happy? By all accounts, he's always been great in the locker room. No issues there. But we finally have a guy that can win off the edge. He flat out beat his tackle a couple of times. And he was running things down in the running game. Really excited about Carlos Dunlap. And I and I hope, I really hope they figure out a way, judging just off one game, obviously. But against a good offensive line that had some issues on the interior, but good tackles, you know, we finally got a guy that that can that can win one on one. But the reason that the grade, staying on the edge for a second, L.J. Collier in his second year has been solid at base end. There's some hope there. He could be a really solid starting five technique in this league. Alton Robinson has shown a lot of promise. Consistently, is he there, play in, play out? No, that's why he was a fifth-round pick and not a first- or second-round pick. But he looks like a guy that can be a starter in this league and make an impact. But it's the interior of the line that has kept this grade from falling off a cliff. It's Dunlap's addition at the last second, and it's the interior. Jaron Reed is showing why the team wanted to stick with him and, and commit to him for two years. Leads the team in sacks now. Had a couple against Buffalo. That may be because he finally does have a guy in Dunlap on the edge now to take some pressure off of him. But also, Puna Ford and Brian Monet have been very, very good on the interior. The Seahawks have been pretty good against the run, and they've gotten some pressure from the interior too. You know, they had seven sacks against the Buffalo, against a mobile quarterback, one of the most mobile quarterbacks in the league. So this position group may be trending up, which a couple of weeks ago is all we wanted to see. A couple of weeks ago, if you'd have told me the defensive line was improving, I'd have said, this defense has a chance. But there's another position group that's holding him back. We might also see Snacks Harrison this week. Brian Monet is hurt, high ankle sprain. He might be out for a while. He might go on IR. It may have even happened already this this morning. But we may get to see Damon Harrison now for the first time. Snacks, one of the when he's at his best, one of the elite run stoppers in the league. Be fun to watch him along with Dunlap, Robinson, Reed. This could be a good group. Linebackers, I'm going to give him a B minus. There have been some tackling issues at times. There have been some coverage issues at times. Cody Barton, when he had the opportunity to start, was really disappointing. I Loved what I saw from him as a rookie. Doesn't look as instinctive and decisive this year. Don't know what's going on there. I still think he can be a good player in this league. But he certainly didn't look good when he was given the opportunity early in the season. Bobby Wagner's been Bobby Wagner. It was kind of invisible in the Arizona game. I think the Cardinals did a nice job of scheming him away from the play. They were also very conservative, though, in their game plan. The Seahawks were defensively that game. Didn't really give him an opportunity to do anything. That changed against San Francisco, and then it changed out of desperation against Buffalo. They're using him as a blitzer more so than any other time in his career. That makes him a weapon. K.J. Wright still showing he's effective. I thought this was a guy we should move on from for financial reasons and because we had some young guys at the position. He's having one of his best seasons. And Jordan Brooks, now that he's back and healthy from the slight knee injury, we see the flashes of why he was a first-round pick, why so many other teams were high on him, why the quote-unquote experts who slammed the Seahawks for taking him in the first round um, probably Look like they might be eating their words in the uh, in the future. Really looks like a player. Quick, instinctive, hits hard, can go sideline to sideline. I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg with Jordan Brooks, but very, very high ceiling with that young man. So a B- for the linebacker group. And some of that might not be their fault. They might, they're being asked to do more than they should be, and it puts them in a position sometimes to uh, swing and miss. And now we get to the defensive backs. And you're all probably thinking to yourself, well, this has to be an F, right? <laughs> it's a D minus. A D minus. Let's see, do I have this? <laughs> nope. I gotta learn these buttons. Maybe it's this one. Hold on. Okay. That's kind of been the theme. Okay, that laugh track's going on too long. Uh game of D minus. The only thing presenting this or preventing this from being an F is. What we've seen from Jamal Adams in his three games. You can't give the group an F when you have a guy like that playing at that level. And yes, there were some issues against Buffalo, but again, maybe being asked to do too much and and trying to make up for some other guys that shouldn't be on the field. But Jamal Adams has been every bit as good as advertised. Add this to the list of bigger issues we're not going to talk about today, but we'll talk about in the future. Is Is he good enough? that he was worth the investment and the cost to the Seahawks that we're going to feel for the next two drafts? We'll see. But he's good. This group's had some bad luck too, though. Shaquille Griffin was inconsistent, but he was making some plays. Came up with some huge plays in that Minnesota game. He clearly was their best cover corner and gave them a chance against some of the better wide receivers in the league. Then he got the concussion. Then he got the hamstring injury. He's missed two games now. Who knows how long he's going to be out. Hasn't even practiced in the last two and a half weeks. So your best defensive back is hurt. That doesn't help. And Quentin Dunbar, we were hopeful about, started the year injured. When he came back, was a clear upgrade over Trey Flowers, but the knee clearly isn't 100%. He should not have been on the field in Buffalo. Pete Carroll needs to learn to trust some of his other guys and play someone like a Stevens or a Reed over someone who's playing on one leg. Quentin Dunbar shouldn't be playing right now. Fortunately, and this has helped kind of save this group's grade as well, Trey Flowers has responded to the fact that he was essentially benched, that The team went out and traded for his replacement, and he was relegated to third corner. He was the best defensive back on the field in Buffalo, made some plays, had a solid cover game from to the naked eye. Haven't checked his PFF grades, but but going into this game against the Rams, Trey Flowers is cornerback number one, and you have Lyndon Stevens and DJ Reed, because Quentin Dunbar's out too. I don't even want to think about how they're going to try and cover Robert Woods, Cooper Cup. Josh Reynolds. Gerald Everett. Tyler Higbee. Yeesh. Like what we've seen, though, from DJ Reed in his two games since uh, since coming off the injured list. Ryan Neal, he's been banged up, but he's shown some things as a safety. Ugo Amadi also really was looking good in the slot. Then he got hurt. He sensed. A trend here, so I forgive them a little bit. Another one of the reasons it's not enough. There's a lot of injuries at play here. But Quandre Diggs, I want to talk about him. When he was acquired from Detroit last year for fifth round pick, he made an Im- immediate impact. Remember that San Francisco game on the road? He was huge, playmaker, difference maker. A lot of people talked about, hey, he's 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 not Earl Thomas in his in his prime, but he's. Good enough to play that deep third, to play that center field safety, which allows Carroll to run the system he likes to run. Diggs has been invisible at times. Came up with the pick a couple weeks ago. Maybe that was going to get him going. Just hasn't made enough plays, hasn't made enough of an impact. You know, when they traded for him, I think we all thought, well, let's hope that we can sign this guy and keep him long-term. He's a free agent after this season. I don't know if he's a priority to bring back, to be honest. And on a side note, how bad did Earl Thomas have to destroy his reputation to still be sitting at home right now? Presumably healthy. Not getting any feelers. Because talent-wise, where the Seahawks are right now defensively, think they could use a guy like that? And I doubt they've even given a second thought. Or I guess a first thought to giving him a call. I had a college professor tell me one time, in my class, you will have to work harder to get an F than an A. He meant you really had to go out of your way. If you just came to class every single day and listened, didn't even take good notes, didn't do a lot of extra work outside the outside the classroom, you were going to do well enough to get a decent grade. But to get an F, you were going to have to just blow the class off, not come to class. Earl Thomas has had to work harder to destroy his career when he should have had good years left Then he would have had to work to repair that. Could have still be in Seattle, actually, if he had done things just a little bit differently. So those are the position groups, special teams. Actually, I didn't give him a grade. Uh, just occurred to me. But I would give him an A. Michael Dixon, uh, after kind of a sophomore slump, can we say, it has been Fantastic. Maybe the most dangerous punter in the league. When you need a 60-yarder, he's there for you. When you need it pinned inside the 10, he's 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 the best in the NFL. And after a first year, uh, Myers has been pretty good. He's been really, really solid this year, actually. Didn't get any opportunities the first three weeks. He's gotten more the last few weeks, and he's been great. Even when he—the he, thing I like— the most about Myers this year is even when he was making field goals last year, <laughs> there was always a little, a little sketchiness to it, a little draw, a little fade. He's been really solid this year, so we'll give the special teams, uh, at least the kicking game, an A. Uh, they gave up the long return on the first kick last week to the to the Bills, and that set the tone for that first drive. So the coverage teams uh, maybe not so great, but uh, the coaching staff. This was a really tricky one. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cop out and give them a seat. And here's why. I give them an F for how they've coached the defense. Game plans haven't been good enough. Adjustments haven't been good enough. Carroll essentially throwing up his hands after the Bills game and saying, I don't, I don't know. We didn't expect him to throw that much. Really? You're the worst team in the league right now at covering, and your best cover corners out. Your second best cover corner is playing on one leg. You didn't expect him to throw the football coming off a bye? That was really disturbing. They get an F for how they've handled the defense. Because I feel like even with injuries and even with talent deficiencies and new guys and new spots, you scheme for that, right? Good coaches scheme for that. And for all of you fire Ken Norton people, this is on Carroll. He plays a part in the game day play calling. He did on Sunday. He was a key part of some of the cover zero blitzes that didn't work out that they got burned on. He admitted that after the game. But they get an A for how they've handled the offense. Finally. They waited too long. Might have cost us a couple of playoff wins the last couple of years. But they finally handed the reins to Russell Wilson and let him run with it. And they're they're pinning their hopes on their best player. That's what you should do. A on offense, F on defense, C overall. Now, Carroll's end-of-the-season grade will likely be dictated by how the next couple of weeks go. We'll get into that in just a second. Uh, My MVP, I'm going to save that, actually, because that one might surprise some of you. Rookie of the year, Damian Lewis. Seahawks for most of the Pete Carroll, John Schneider era have been objectively bad at evaluating and drafting offensive linemen. They drafted more than any other team in that three- or four-year span between about 2015 and 2018 when they needed to upgrade that terrible offensive line. Almost all their draft picks were failures. Uh, Some hope in what we see from Damian Lewis little bit of a surprise. They took him in the third round. We were all thinking they would take a tackle. They took a guard. He has been great. Just made the mid-season Pro Football Focus All-Rookie team. Grades out as a top five run blocker in the league. His pack, pass protection has been solid too. He, but he and Posick and and Jordan Simmons can kind of get an honorable mention, uh, sort of an unsung player award. If I had, if I had. Given that, when Mikey Potty got hurt at left guard, the interior penetration that's been such a problem for this unit the last three, four years has not been this year. And Damian Lewis is a big part of that. You know who else is a big part of that? Most improved this year, Ethan Posick. It's a damn shame he's hurt this week. Really wanted to see what he and Lewis could do going up against Aaron Donald. Now we're going to see what we have in Kyle Fuller. And I handed out a most disappointing award. That's Diggs. Talked about him. Really, really disappointed in what I've seen or what we haven't seen from him. Just not enough plays, not enough impact. Now, MVP, you might all think it's Russ. I'm giving it to DK Metcalf. I just think he has played consistently week in, week out as an elite player. And I think his development, his ascension, the step forward he's taken this year has given Russell Wilson – more opportunities. And you can make the argument he's had a bigger impact on this offense than Wilson. He's playing at an all-pro level. So my MVP for the first half of the season goes to DK Metcalf. Now let's talk about the team. Uh, Game coming up tomorrow against the Rams in L.A. in that beautiful new stadium of of theirs. And then they got to turn around four days later, come back home and play that Cardinals team that caused so many problems for them a month ago or three weeks ago. So my message to you is brace yourselves for the next two weeks because this could be two losses. Now I have been, and and you should thank me for this, with what I just said, I have been terrible at telling you how I think Seahawks games are going to go the last couple of weeks. Told you to prepare for a loss against 49ers. Overestimated that team and how good they looked the week before against the Rams underestimated the injuries, in particular to Jimmy Garoppolo in the running game. Uh, The 49ers just weren't very good. And then I said I felt good about them against Buffalo. Buffalo hadn't played well the last couple of weeks, and that their wins had been against teams with a combined losing record. Underestimated the team coming off a bye. They had a great plan for the Seahawks. Well, the Rams are coming off a bye as well. And we know that Pete Carroll has yet to really figure out Sean McVay. Got the win last year in Seattle. But if you remember how that, that win ended, Greg Zerline, usually a Seahawk killer and a very reliable field goal kicker, barely missed a field goal. Seahawks eke out a win there. But brace yourself for the next two weeks. This could very well be two losses, which would make it three straight, which would make it four out of five. But I'm here to tell you, even if that happens, the sky will not fall. I'm going to try as best I can to break that down for you. This is one of those where I wish I'd uh, I'd had the time to put into doing this as a live stream. I could have prepared for some graphics. But bear with me for a moment. A split in the next six days, five days, would be a major victory for the Seahawks. But even losing both will not be the end of the world or the season. Here I sit in the middle of a pandemic saying that a football team losing would be the end of the world. My apologies. Here's what this could look like. If the Rams win tomorrow, Seahawks and Rams would both be 6-3. and Rams would own the tiebreaker, obviously. But they play in week, is it the last game of the year? It's either week 16 or 17. So a chance to get that back. Arizona plays Buffalo. And I feel a lot better after seeing them up close and personal where that Buffalo team is right now. Arizona coming off a bye, being at home, but I still like Buffalo in that game. But if Arizona were to win that game, that would get them to 6-3. and three. So a three-way tie for first place. The Seahawks, though, would be down in tiebreakers to both teams. So a virtual three way tie, but with the Seahawks being down a tiebreaker. Still with games left against both teams. If they then were to lose to Arizona the next week, Seahawks would fall to six and four. Cardinals would improve to seven and three. Which would essentially at that time be a two game lead because they would own the full season tiebreaker. But then next week, the Rams travel to Tampa on Monday Night Football. That's a tough, tough matchup for them. A win in Tampa would also get them to seven and three. Seahawks would be squarely in second place, but that's likely a loss. So I'm going to say here's the most likely scenario. Even if the Seahawks lose the next two weeks, it's more likely that Arizona loses to Buffalo. It's more likely that the Rams lose to Tampa. And then all three teams would be tied atop the NFC West at that time with six and four records. Seahawks would still trail in the tiebreakers. But when you look at the rest of the season, who would you trust more than to come out with more wins? a young Arizona team, or the Seahawks. Again, a lot of this comes down to getting that defense healthy. That's what would happen if the Seahawks lost the next two weeks, Arizona loses to Buffalo tomorrow, and the Rams lose Monday Night Football in Tampa. They would all be 6-4, and and here we go, right? It would be a mad six-week dash to the NFC West. The worst case scenario, if both those teams won, and the Seahawks lose to both of them in the next five days, would be the Seahawks sit a full game behind the Rams and two behind the Cardinals. But we're going to talk about what's left, obviously, because you never know in this league, and you never know. Sometimes when you expect the least out of the Seahawks, that's when they rise up and make something happen. The best case would be if the Seahawks could sweep the next two weeks, they'd be 8-2, and two, and the Cards and Rams would either be 5-5 five and five or 6-4. and four. That's how frustrating the performance of this defense is. If we could count on them even to be an average defense, there's a very good chance the Seahawks could essentially run away with the NFC West that the Cardinals and Rams would both be sitting at 5-5 five and five in two weeks, the Seahawks would be 8-2. And, and obviously there's a wide array of potential other scenarios within that. But this all leads to weeks 12 through 15. Because after these two games in five days against the Rams and Cardinals, they play in order, the Eagles, Giants, Jets, and Washington football team, for losing teams with tons of issues. How about the Rams? Well, they've already played the Jets and Giants, so they lose some of that advantage. They still have both games against the Cardinals. They still play the 49ers one more time. Then they have non-conference games against the Patriots. The Cardinals have also already played the Jets, but they still have both their games against the Rams. So those two teams, we might be in a situation where we want to see those teams split. And then they also play the Eagles and Giants. So they not a tough road the rest of the way either. So, bottom line, who has the most favorable path to the division title? If Arizona beats Buffalo tomorrow and the Seahawks on Thursday night, clearly it would be them. If Arizona loses to Buffalo... I think the Seahawks then have the most favorable path to the division title, even if the Cardinals win that Thursday night football game. That's why I say if the Seahawks can somehow split these two games over the next five days, it's a major, major victory. Winning the division is still not just a possibility, but at this point, it's still a probability, even as bad as we all feel about how the defense played against Buffalo. It's kind of deflating. The the def- it feels like the defense doesn't give us a chance to compete. But they will get guys back. The reason I spell out these scenarios is because the defense likely won't improve until Griffin gets back and this new core gets a few weeks together. Adams gets integrated back into the into the defense. Dunlap gets more comfortable. Snacks Harrison gets integrated little bit more development from Collier and Robinson and Brooks and Reed. Ahmadi comes back. And I kind of get the feeling that maybe there's a chance some of those guys that have been ruled out for tomorrow might have been able to play, might have been able to tough it out. But A, Carl saw how Carol saw how that worked out with Dunbar. It didn't work out great. But B, maybe he thinks they have a chance. Maybe he thinks Griffin has a chance to get back for the Cardinal game. And he feels like that's a little bit more important because they're already down one to him in the standings. So they play the Rams tomorrow, and this is a a team that I didn't... I, I don't have a lot of conviction in saying that I think the Rams are good, and that, for me, all comes down to Jared Goff. I still, at this point in his career, don't think he's taking a step forward. Don't think he's an elite quarterback. He's beatable. He'll do a couple of things each game to kind of let you back in it and let you hang around. Seahawks' defense right now simply might not be good enough to take advantage of that. Because when you look at the numbers... The Rams are kind of scary. That defense after a down year last year is back. Second in the league in points per game. Fourth in rushing yards per game. Second in passing yards per game. Fifth in sacks. Aaron Donald leads the NFL with nine sacks. And they're coming off a bye. And they have an elite cover corner. This is going to be a tough, tough game. It seems like one of those games where the defense will need to generate some turnovers. To have a chance. Can they? Or that the offense would need to score on nearly every drive, make it a shootout. Can they against that defense? The Rams' offense isn't as scary as it was a couple of years ago. Middle of the middle of the pack, middle of the league. They're actually running the ball better, and they're throwing it this year. But but just like Buffalo did, look for them to throw it a ton tomorrow. supposed to be rainy, supposed to be bad weather here in Seattle. Too bad the game's not here. It might actually kind of even things out a little bit. But it's in L.A., sunny, they're coming off a bye. Man, this one looks tough, doesn't it? The best route to a split the next six days might be to beat Arizona. And again, that might be why they decided to hold out so many players this week. I'm not saying they're tanking this game. The Seahawks don't do that. Pete Carroll doesn't believe in that but they may have made some hard strategic choices seeing the path to a split being a little bit better against Arizona. Um, This scenario I've laid out, the Seahawks getting their defense healthy, playing competitively, and then feasting on that four-week stretch of non-divisional games and finishing strong is still dependent on a lot of ifs. And to be honest, most likely those ifs probably all won't come together. I mean, we've reached the halfway point at a much different crossroads than we envisioned a month ago when I declared this team a Super Bowl contender. I don't think they are today. They can work themselves themselves back into that. But how did we get here? Well, the offseason wasn't managed properly. The offseason, a poor offseason, with personnel decisions, led them to where they are. Today, not enough impact on defense, not enough depth on defense. That's a much bigger issue to be explored and dissected at another time. I hope that isn't a conversation that we have to have in depth at the end of the season. Let's see how the next six weeks plays out first. Let's see, because I still do believe that that defense can get better to at least get some stops and give the offense a chance to carry the day. Speaking of carrying the day, let's talk about the Cougs for a moment. They opened the Nick Rolovich era on the road. Uh, They were an underdog at Oregon State, yet a convincing win. They led the entire way with a freshman quarterback, brand new offensive and defensive schemes, lots of young players on the two deep. I have two big takeaways in this one. The defense, can you believe I'm about to talk about defense first when it comes to the WSU Cougars? They were a bit of a revelation. Jake Dickert's reputation for game planning and adapting from what he had built at at Wyoming as a a really bright, young, defensive mind seems to be well-placed. They play four down linemen now instead of three. They just seemed much more stout up front, much better, much more consistent. Uh, In the running game, Jamar Jefferson had 120 yards, but he had to work for it. He had the three touchdowns. But they really were were feeding him the football, and they, for the most part, they they kept him in check. They limited big plays. You just didn't see the big busted plays and, and explosive plays against the Cougs that we're used to. And this was an Oregon State team that had some expectations going in. Cougs got pressure on the quarterback, and they got it from a bunch of different angles and a bunch of different ways with a bunch of different guys. It was really cool to see. And the coverage in the secondary, which has traditionally been a huge Achilles heel, looked greatly improved. Um, Really excited about the future of the defense. Looks like it's coordinated well. And recruiting on that side of the ball looks like it's going well also. And on offense, if you've listened to this podcast for very long, you know how I have felt about Mike Leach and his system and his play calling. And I will say this once. I'm sure it's not the last time I'll have to say it. I love Mike Leach for what he did for the WSU program. He brought him up from the depths. He turned him around. He put them in a position for a uh, uh, an appropriate successor to succeed. But he also cost them football games that could have made it even better with his stats stubbornness, his unwillingness to run the football when it was obvious, when it was necessary against teams that were begging you to run the football. His stubbornness was sticking with the same simplistic play calls that other teams knew were coming. And he wouldn't vary the game plan. What What we saw in one game is this looks like the system I've been pounding the table for for the last four or five years. You've heard Eric Briggs and I talk about this at length on this podcast. This looks like the air raid in many ways, four wides, no tight end, ball control through throwing the football with some deep shots mixed in, but with a much more substantial running game, the tight splits up front, much more physical running game, and zone read option concepts with a mobile quarterback. Every single disciple of Leach's has taken his offense and incorporated those concepts into it, except for Leach. And that's what we're seeing from that run and shoot from Rolovich. And we didn't even see Max Borgie, one of the best running backs in the country on the field, hurt his back in practice, might not play tonight against Oregon either. But no worries, Deion McIntosh, the Notre Dame transfer, ran for over 100 yards, and he looked great. Really get you excited about Borgie coming back, having a one-two punch for a coach that actually wants to use his running game appropriately. He's going to take it when it's there. He's going to use it to control the clock and keep the pressure off the passing game. Keep the pressure off the young quarterback, Jaden Delora. Let's talk about him, the true freshman from Hawaii, 18 for 33, 227 yards, two touchdowns through the air and another one on the ground. Threw an interception, forced the ball into double coverage in the end zone. It was a freshman decision. Also ran for 43 yards on eight carries in that touchdown on the ground. He looked poised. He looked comfortable in the moment and, more importantly, comfortable with that offense. Ran the exact same offense in high school and that, presumably that and his mobility is what won him the job over Cam Cooper and Gunnar Cruz. Interesting to see... At least on the R-Lads site, they had Gunnar Cruz listed as the backup. If, if Delora were to get nicked up, I'm, I'm curious to see who the backup would be. But, but hopefully that won't be an issue. Kid has a quick release. More arm strength than I thought. Really spins the ball well. Throws a nice ball. Still has some projection in his body too, right? Listed at 6'1", 190. He looks smaller on screen. Could get stronger. Did miss on a couple of throws, of course, to be expected. But there was a big moment in the third quarter that told me a lot about this kid. He had a touchdown pass to Renard Bell that was called back after a review. Comes back on the next play. Key moment in the game. With an absolute pinpoint touchdown pass to the back pylon. that was as good as you can throw a football. Wasn't shook by the reversal weaknesses uh there were some accuracy issues those are to be expected especially early it did look like he was a little nervous a little anxious early on he needs to tuck the ball away when he runs holds it like a loaf of bread holds it out in his palm and he's got a really bad habit of he does that 180 bailout scramble to his backside when he feels pressure um Much the same way that Russell Wilson did his first few years in the league. He learned um, to to change that. Hopefully, DeLore can do that while he's in college as well. Because he needs to stop that. He needs to learn to climb the pocket. Teams are going to know he's doing that. And when they're coming at him from the backside, they're going to be ready for it. And that could really lead to some strip sacks and and some hard hits and, and... Potentially injury and huge, huge sacks for loss. Um, but, man, love love what I saw from the kid. Has all the tools. Potentially with the extra year of eligibility now because of COVID. Has five years to play. So you want to comp? He reminds me of Kyler Murray. In style. I'm not saying he's as good as Kyler Murray or, or going to be as good as Kyler Murray. He was an elite prospect, but he's bigger. He has a very similar style. I think he has a better throwing motion. Uh, the bottom line is based on the debut. Uh, Pat Chun made a great choice and Nick Rolovich. I like the, the choice when they made it, once I learned about him and who he was. Um, we'll see. Obviously, each week is going to tell us a little bit more. This whole season for me is just gravy. It's a it's a developmental season. If they end up going one and six, or seven and it will won't change my mind. It's a developmental season. Everything is gravy. Thrilled with what I saw that first week. They play Oregon this week, obviously a much bigger test. So we'll find out more. It's in Pullman though. No fans in the stands. We'll see how these kids. We'll see how they respond. We'll know much more about them after today. All right, now let's check in on the Mariners. (laughs) It's been a quiet offseason. Usually we're used to Jerry Depoto working the phones, making deals, making trades, making things happen. He doesn't like to wait around, Uh, but it's been pretty quiet. Not all quiet. Obviously, on Monday, Kyle Lewis named American League Rookie of the Year. That is huge. Uh, really exciting. Uh, love what we saw out of him. We've talked about that. We'll talk about it some more. I haven't really dove into the the Mariners season. Uh, Jason Churchill and I are supposed to get together here soon. I've just been busy, so hopefully I'll get him hooked up in the next couple of weeks, and we will really talk uh, some Mariner baseball. Um uh, I, need, I should check in with Colby and Ty, too, the guys over at True to the Trident, and uh, and do some Mariner talk here as we get deeper into the offseason, get close to the general manager and the owner meetings where things might start to happen. Uh, DePoto likely is lying in wait and letting the market play out, as a lot of these GMs are doing. Um, if he thought there was a difference maker out there, we know his M.O. Um, if he thought there was a guy he had to have, he doesn't typically wait around. If there's a path to get that guy, he would get him. He most likely he has, you know, his whiteboards look like a beautiful mind in his office. And he likely has a bunch of scenarios laid out and we will let the market in the offseason dictate that path. Um, I do want to say this as one final baseball note. Something really, really significant happened this week. Just a week after the country elected their first ever female vice president, and also a vice president who has ethnicity and is a woman of color. As a, regardless of where you fall, on which side of the aisle, and where your politics are, that was a great moment. But the Miami Marlins provided us with another one. They hired Kim Ng as their general manager. You may have heard of her. She's been an executive in baseball for a very long time. Uh, I believe she came up through the Dodgers system. She interviewed for the Mariners' GM job. I don't think it was when DePoto got the job. I think it was when Jack Serenjic was hired. Very, very highly thought of for a very long time. Has learned from some of the best, has worked with some of the best, and now she gets a chance to run a franchise. So kudos to Derek Jeter and that ownership group in Miami uh, for having the balls to hire Kim Ng. I, they have a new fan now. I'm, I'm really going to be fascinated to see what they do. Um, and I'll, I'll be following and tracking the Miami Marlins very closely over the next couple of years. Um, just a, just a really, really exciting moment with all the shit that we've had to live through this year and all the negativity out there and all the divisiveness, what we've seen in the last seven days, as far as progressiveness in, uh, with women getting, uh, a couple of big jobs, (laughs) uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, next week, before Thursday, um, <sighs> I will record before Thursday next week so we can check in on the Hawks and continue to track that divisional race, see where they are after the Rams game, see where the injuries are, see how that defense responded against the Rams offense as they get ready to take on the Cardinals on Thursday Night Football. More to assess with the Kooks. We'll also have our first look at Dub and the debut of Jimmy Lake as head coach and their quarterback situation as they take on oregon state late tonight follow me on twitter at seahawks forever and also at emerald city 365 that's my twitter feed that i will be starting up for the emerald city sportscast live radio show starting in january also follow at 365 sportscast the network for all the updated news on launch you can email the show also at uh, the dan cave show the dan cave show at gmail.com And in my Twitter bio, you will find a link that you can click on and hit the message button. Leave me a voicemail and I'll use it on the show. With COVID spiking, I will just say this. Be safe. Wear a damn mask. Wash your damn hands. Be courteous and kind. And as always, go Seahawks, go Mariners, and go Cougs.